Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow StoryGrid certified editors, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. Each week this season, one of us proposes a favorite movie that they think is a great example of a key story principle. That editor has to make the case for their position with the help of a partner, and two of us will try to pick that argument apart. This week, Anne pitched Adaptation as a great example of genre mashup that works. This 2002 film starring Nicolas Cage and Meryl Streep was directed by Spike Jones from a screenplay by Charlie Kaufman based on Susan Orlean's nonfiction book, The Orchid Thief. Anne will be assisted today on the A team by Jari. Kim and Valerie will be on the B team. Their job is to question whether the story principle really is demonstrated by the movie, perhaps give some counterexamples, and discuss just how far accepted story principles can be bent before the story breaks. Lots and lots of writers struggle with settling on a single global genre, and as you probably know, here at StoryGrid, we tend to argue in favor of established story form and choosing a single global genre. So what is a mashup? What are the differences between a mashup and simply including extra elements from other genres? And finally, how do you avoid making a muddled mess? Let's get right to it. Anne is going to present the story and the A-team's main argument. Okay, well, what is the difference between a mashup and a muddled mess and just an homage to various genres? We'll we'll talk about that. There's Those are not questions that are super well-defined, um, so we'll make a stab at it. The genre of this story, if I had to pick a main one, and I'm having a hard time doing that, is status sentimental. Now, Jari's going to argue for status pathetic, and he makes a pretty good case for that. While I know Kim and Valerie have an entirely different take on the genre, which they're going to argue for in a minute. And you can see right away, we're all seeing different genres in this. So there's a sort of a mashup clue for you. Jari and I agreed that there's a strong performance element in this story, which is sort of surprising. Both types of story status and performance live in the esteem tank of human needs. So we see that Charlie, the main character, really, really needs third-party validation and esteem. To me, his whole character is based around needing to succeed, to be thought well of, to be loved, to be liked, all that sort of thing. He starts out personally low. And though he has an earlier screenplay that is being produced, we see him on the set of the movie being produced. It's not exactly blockbuster material. It is, in fact, uh, being John Malkovich, which was a great movie, but not what you'd call, you know, a Marvel comics movie. And he needs another job. So he's miserable and he's a failure in love. And he does achieve a degree of success in the end by finishing his screenplay, a fact that we understand because we're actually seeing the movie that he wrote. It's a very strange screenplay, and he remains a complete failure in love. So as to the performance genre, it's kind of a stretch, but if you view the whole chase scene in the swamp at the end of the movie as the performance he's been leading up to, I think you can make a case for it being a performance story. Susan, the other character, has a different global genre. I think it's worldview disillusionment. 
But by the time Charlie's done rewriting her, there's a strong obsession love story too. Now, I think the controlling idea for this movie, based on the status genre that I think kind of more or less has the through line, and that is a blocked screenwriter succeeds in adapting a difficult book to a screenplay by compromising his values of artistic purity and accepting that if there's no story, he has to invent one. So I'm going to go straight into the basic synopsis of the story by going through the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. The beginning hook, in my view, and Valerie's going to come up with a very different structure for where these act lines fell in the movie, and I think she might be right. When Charlie Kaufman is hired to adapt Susan Orlean's nonfiction book to a screenplay, he must find a way to stay true to the book and his own artistic standards. But discouraged by failure in love and a twin brother or alter ego with a stupid blockbuster script idea, Charlie can't find a story and can't get the screenplay started. Uh, in the story of Susan Orleans that takes place beginning three years earlier, when she interviews John LaRoche about the ghost orchid, she doesn't take his bragging seriously, begins to fear she won't get a story out of him. But when he describes the symbiotic life of insects and flowers to her, she begins to see the story she wants to write. She becomes fascinated by him and decides she must see a ghost orchid herself in order to understand the kind of passion that drives him. In the middle build, comparing her lackluster marriage to the vitality of LaRoche's life, Susan decides to write about him as much as about the orchids. When a movie executive offers to option the published story for a movie, she returns to Florida to hunt the ghost orchid with him, but becomes disillusioned when he turns out to have feet of clay, and she ends her book never having seen the ghost orchid. Meanwhile, in the present of the movie, Charlie's love life and the screenplay both fail more and more miserably as his brother or alter ego Donald's love life and outrageous screenplay thrive. Under deadline pressure, Charlie caves and attends the Robert McKee seminar that has inspired Donald and realizes that he can't turn Susan's book into a truthful screenplay. Here's that key scene. It's a lot of fun. Um, be warned, there's some pretty foul language in here. Yes. Sir, what if a writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, where people don't change, they don't have any epiphanies, they struggle and are frustrated and nothing is resolved? More reflection of the real world. The real world? Yes, sir. The real fucking world. First of all, you write a screenplay without conflict or crisis, you'll bore your audience to tears. Secondly, nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your fucking mind? People are murdered every day. There's genocide, war, corruption. Every fucking day, somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every fucking day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. People find love. People lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman. If you can't find that stuff in life, then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. And why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? I don't have any use for it. I don't have any bloody use for it. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well... 
um, when Charlie takes all that in, he realizes that he must invent a story or fail. With Donald's help, he ferrets out or imagines ferreting out Susan's secret love for LaRoche and finds a way uh, into an exciting, although largely false, screenplay. In the ending payoff, as Charlie's screenplay unfolds before us, Susan Orlean sees but is disillusioned by the ghost orchid, but she accepts LaRoche's offer to get high on a drug created from its leaves and enters a sexual relationship with him. When they catch Charlie spying on him, Susan decides to kill him, and a chase into the swamp ensues, during which every cliché from Donald's thriller screenplay takes place. Donald dies in a car wreck, LaRoche is killed by an alligator, and Charlie, a sadder but wiser man, returns to Hollywood knowing how to finish his screenplay, but still a failure in love. My main reason for wanting to use this movie was that I found it really hard to pin it down to a specific genre, and yet I found it satisfying and hugely entertaining. I wanted to think about why this is a story that works when it seems to break so many story rules. Uh, principally having like genres all over the place. The point is that all the genres I mentioned before are operating in a very clearly tongue-in-cheek way, and it seems to be both a nod to Robert McKee and his whole story method for screenwriters and a satire on him at the same time, and, and it does work. Um, I'm going to add a link to a video interview with Robert McKee where he talks about his role in this movie. It's pretty entertaining. Why does it work? Because I think where it falls on three of the other leaves of the story genre, Clover. Structurally, it's kind of mini plot in the sense that Susan's and Charlie's stories unfold separately, but in kind of little pieces, and they're intertwined and cutting back and forth. Stylistically, it's both literary with major meta subgenre credentials, and it's comedy. So all of that helps it work. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Jari has more on that. From the reality leaf, it pulls heavily on absurdism, which Jari's going to give us some detail on. We've seen a lot of movies with nonlinear timelines, but the insertion of character Charlie, Charlie Kaufman wrote the screenplay, and he is a character in his own screenplay. So he inserts himself into the story, and then the story becomes, before our eyes, the actual movie that we're watching. It's written by a real guy named Charlie Kaufman. And so it's, it's all so meta that it just appears into its own belly button. But it works, not because of the exciting ending, although that was hilarious, but because after all, the real Charlie Kaufman did find a way to turn Susan Orlean's book about orchids into a movie as ridiculous as his decisions were about how to do that. Valerie, you took Robert McKee's course recently. Do you think he was accurately portrayed? I think Brian Cox nailed it. Um, <laughs> it, it for anyone who's thinking of taking Robert McKee's story seminar, I highly recommend it, but dress very comfortably and, you know, drink lots of coffee. It is an exercise in um, stamina, I guess, because it was uh, three or four days, I don't remember, but 12 hours a day sitting in a theater, taking notes on your lap. And Robert McKee was on a stage. It was in a, you know, a theater where you'd see a play and it was just him for 12 hours. There were two 20 minute coffee breaks and one hour for lunch, no supper break. And he was on that whole time. Now, lots of people like to criticize him for ego and whatnot, and he certainly does have a very healthy ego. But what he's also doing up there is a one-man show. So if he's not entertaining, then good luck to you. You know, you, there's no way you're going to keep your students entertained if you're if you're not putting on some kind of a show. And while he's up there, I mean, I was in the 
the middle of the front row, as you guys can totally imagine. Um, for, <laughs> I can see that. For, for the whole time looking right up at him. And I was taking notes very studiously. And there was one point when he, I can't remember exactly what he said, but basically in one of the movies that we studied, uh, some violent thing had happened to the female character. And he said, well, she deserved it. And when he said that, he looked right <laughs> down at me and got the reaction. He got the reaction that he was hoping to get from me because I gave him the dirtiest look I could possibly give a person. A- and it was all so instinctual. And then he kind of started to laugh and I went, oh, damn, he got me. Now I had questions I wanted to ask him because it I spent a lot of money to get down there and, and go to this, this seminar. So I wanted to, wanted to get my money's worth. Um, and I had to muster up all my courage to go and speak with him. But one-on-one, he is such a lovely man. There is nothing threatening about him when you go to speak to him one-on-one. He's very patient with your questions. He will answer whatever question you have. Um, and it was very much the Robert McKee that we see in the bar scene with Charlie Kaufman. So, so oh, yeah, that, that's a real good one. Too. Yeah. And so in the movie, you get these two very different versions of Robert McKee, but they're both accurate. He starts off the seminar with his rules, which I appreciate. Like, you know, you turn off your cell phone and if it rings once, uh, you pay him $20, but you get to stay. If it rings twice, you th- get thrown out and that's all there is to it. And lo and behold, someone's oh, cell phone God. rang. And... <laughs> Oh yeah, it was it was not pretty. Like fear just went in all our hearts. But only one cell phone rang. No one else has ever rang again and nobody spoke. So yeah, I think it was a, a an excellent portrayal. That's great. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, Anne and I, when we talked about this, you know, we determined this is a mashup of different genres in in a mini plot style told in the absurdist style with a very good, healthy mix of dark comedy. What do I mean by mashup? Well, a mashup is a mix of different things that make an entirely new thing. So you take some things, you mix them together, and you get a mashup. And those things that you're mixing up should be known to the reader, the viewer, the consumer. It's kind of like a recipe. So you have two different recipes, and you're trying to mix them together. Uh, The best example I could come up with is with is a cronut. A cronut is a mashup of a croissant and a donut. And if you do it right, it works because cronuts are delicious. If you don't, you get something like tuna mayo Doritos, which is no joke. They actually made these things. So go <laughs> go look them up on the internet. <laughs> it sounds miserable and awful because yeah, why would you want a tuna mayo Doritos? But, but that's an example of like, that just doesn't work. There's things that combine together work. There's things that combine together that don't work. And so one of the things that's always good is like, okay, what's, a, what's an example of a, of a mashup that works? And one that we looked at was Hot Fuzz. And we've talked about that before on the podcast. You know, we thought it was a thriller and then there's some Western thrown in and you just kind of don't kind of know where to put it, although it does work really well. And if you read, you know, the screenwriters, they talk about, yeah, we wanted to mix things up because we wanted Britain to have a good action-packed movie. So that's what they got. But the thing about... A mashup is it's just not a get out of jail free card. You can't just throw a bunch of things together. You got to get the ingredients right. If you don't, you are going to get something awful. And so just like a cronut, you know, you need to know what you're doing. So within adaptation, you know, there's two parallel plots going on. And the thing that really blends it all together, that kind of like adhesive, you know, makes it cohesive is that it is really um, the reality of it's in the absurdist style. 
before we get into that, let's just talk about what absurdist reality is. And that's part of the reality leaf of the story grid genre, Clover. Absurdism focuses on the experience of characters in situations where they cannot find any inherent purpose in life, most often represented ultimately in meaningless actions and events that call into question existential concepts such as truth or value. It's largely influenced by the existentialist and the nihilist movements in philosophy, where they ponder disorientation, confusion, dread in the face of a, and this is the important part, meaningless or absurd world, and that really life has no objective meaning, purpose, or intrinsic value. And so some of the classic examples of these in literature, uh, Joseph Heller's Catch-22 and uh, John Irving's The World According to Garp. So the common theme the protagonist finds themselves in situations where odd and strange things begin to happen because of their take on the world. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you see this in the Charlie Kaufman character, for sure. They think like, what's the worst possible thing that can happen? And lo and behold, the worst possible thing happens. So it's a real tension within character. And so within um, adaptation, to me, there's really two very strong plots. There's the, obviously the Charlie Kaufman plot. He's struggling to adopt this novel, The Orchid Thief, into a screenplay. So external genre, and that is performance in, in art. And his internal genre, at least to me, is status pathetic. But, you know, Anne and I debated about it might being sentimental. And then in the plot number two, this is the Susan Orlean plot, where she's writing a book about the orchid thief, John LaRoche. And the orchid-stealing protagonist is, you know, her main character. In the original nonfiction book, as Charlie reads it to Robert McKee in the bar, I mean, it ends really flat. I mean, there's no drama in it at all. But as he rewrites it, there is a, a love story. And so you kind of get the sense of, okay, well, why is John really obsessed with this, this orchid? Well, it turns out you can make drugs out of it. So for Susan's character and story plot, it's an obsessive love story. And her internal genre would be, at least in my mind, worldview disillusionment because she originally thinks he's doing this for a noble cause and then he's not. And then she's not only dealing with John and trying to find love through the obsession, but also her husband in the thing is not the best, well, at least for her, not meeting her needs. And, you know, we normally don't talk about the reality and style clover, but if you're going to do a mashup, they're really really, really important. Because if, if you do this wrong and you mash up the wrong genres without the right sort of reality or style, it gets complicated and goes south extremely quick. The reason why the absurdity or the absurd reality works so well is because if it's absurd, people give you a break, right? The disbelief of what's happening, they suspend disbelief because it's absurd. This movie would not have worked if it was just like normal life. I mean, same with Hot Fuzz in a sense. There is some absurdist in Hot Fuzz because some of these things are just so out of control, but it works because it's comedy and, and, and more of a thriller how they did it. The rules, as we always talk about in Story Grid, because of course we like rules and frameworks. The, the thing about this particular movie is that it has all of the conventions, or at least most of the conventions and obligatory scenes for those genres. Some of them aren't there as strong and some of them aren't even there. And we'll put, put all that in the show notes. But it works because of how it's mixed together. And it's mixed together in the comedy absurdist realm. And that's the most important thing to remember. So this is really advanced type stuff. Any one of our clients, we do not recommend you do this right off the bat. 
The reason is, is trying to follow all the story arcs within this can sometimes be challenging. I mean, that's master level storytelling and you can only kind of get away with that if you've actually practiced. I mean, the same thing with Picasso. Picasso didn't start out being a cubist. He started out doing traditional painting until he got so good that he could then explore the boundaries of the medium and what he was doing. This to me, those kind of four genres mashed together with an absurdist dark comedy is what makes this work. That's uh, at least that's our argument. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what team B has to say. Excellent. Thank you. So in, in essence, I think if I'm hearing you correctly, team A or A team is that there's a thread that we can follow. There's an organizing principle that is very strong in the story It's and that happens to not be the genre. And if you do it really well, it seems that adaptation is the, it's the exception that proves the rule. It's really hard. You have to know how to do a croissant and a donut to make a cronut. I don't like that name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> They're so I delicious, though. Either, why do I want <laughs> a cronut now? I want a chrono now. <laughs> um, but the the point is, right, that you have to be able to do both and understand which things they have in common and how you can tie them together so that they make something that is recognizable as a story or a pastry. Yeah, I think I think right. that's accurate. <laughs> what, what do you think, Anne? I think. Uh, now, yeah, now I'm hungry. Well, we'll um, save our rebuttal for, for after, after the B-team talks here. Exactly. We will save the rebuttal, yes. Okay. So, well, it's time to turn to the opposition, and Valerie is going to start us off. Thanks, Leslie. Um, so Kim and I agree that this movie works, but we don't see it as a mashup at all. And our definition of a mashup is when a writer mixes two or more genres without one of them taking priority. And this comes from a desire to innovate. The writer wants to combine different things that he or she loves to create something new. The problem, as we've already said, is that it's really hard to pull off and in the end usually ends up as just a massive confusion for both the writer and the audience because no one really knows what story is being told. And often, if you do pull it off, it ends up being a purple cow, which, which is Seth Godin's idea of a purple cow. And it can't be duplicated because the first purple cow is really interesting. But if you have two purple cows, well, then, you know, our whole field of purple cows, then they're no longer remarkable, right? So, for example, the Pride and Prejudice and Zombies book. When that one came out, it was really innovative and kind of neat and everyone wanted to look at it. And it sold quite well from what I understand. But the other books that came out like that uh, didn't sell so well because it was no longer novel or new. It was a novelty as opposed to an innovation. And in the film world, the example I thought of was the movie with Harrison Ford and I think it was Daniel Craig, Cowboys and Aliens, which was just sort of weird. So the thing that as a writer, what you have to think about is what's your point in writing the book? Do you want to write a novelty? And can you build a career on a novelty? And that's for every author to answer him or herself. Now, there are things that look like mashups that aren't really. So the mashup we're saying is a mix of two or more of the content genres. But then we have 
books like Cinder by Marissa Meyer, which is a combination of a fairy tale and science fiction. So you have a different combination of leaves within the genre Clover. And here on the podcast, we always talk about genre, and then we go to the content leaf. And that's something that we're guilty of that we need to keep reminding ourselves of, as well as anyone who's listening to this podcast, that in StoryGrid, there's a genre clover with five leaves, and you make a selection from each of the leaves. So Cinder would be the reality leaf and the content leaf. Lit RPG is the same type of thing. You've got a choice from the reality leaf and the content leaf. So... Both Kim and I see adaptation as a solid global worldview internal genre. We don't think it's a status because Kaufman already has status in the industry right from the very beginning. I mean, this is why Valerie Thomas gives him the job. She says, we love your work. And the agent, when Charlie tries to back out of the job, the agent says that would be career suicide. So he already has a level of status as a screenwriter. Now, in saying that, Kim and I think that although we agree on worldview, we disagree on the subgenres, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. As an interesting side note, uh, and I think Jari touched on this a little bit, both the main storyline, which is Charlie's story, and the subplot, which is Susan's story, have a secondary performance external genre. I think we all agree on that. And also a love story subplot. But these are all distinct stories and not a mashup. Kim? Yeah, so one thing we see quite often when we have a global genre that is internal, meaning the internal genre is, you know, driving the story forward, that rather than it being paired, you know, with a strong external genre that's acting like a co-pilot in the front seat of this metaphor to help navigate the story, the global genre is really acting like they're in the front seat by themselves and it's what the story is about. But then in the back seat, we have all kinds of various elements, you know, different life values and different conventions and obligatory scenes. Um, and those act as subplots that weave together to become kind of like the setting or the plot device for the internal change that's taking place in the global story. So that is really what I think we're seeing here in adaptation. And we're arguing it's not a mashup, but it is in fact a global internal genre that is supported by these various elements of these other storylines, such as the performance, the love story, and even you know Susan's storyline and that kind of thing. So when Kim first proposed this as, as an education plot, I agreed with her. I could see what she was talking about. But when we were breaking down the responsibilities to prepare for this episode, my job was to find the 15 core scenes for the story and track the value shift. And when I did that, because of course, the core scenes have to turn on the global value for the story, right? So when I did that, I came up with the idea that adaptation is actually a worldview maturation plot because it's about Charlie Kaufman, the writer, and his maturation as an artist. So each of the 15 core scenes are in the show notes, so I won't go through them here. But in a nutshell, they all turn on the global value spectrum of naivete master sophistication to sophistication. And I'm willing to bet that if I looked at the hero's journey, I would be able to track those stages too. But to be honest, I didn't think to do that until just now. <laughs> um, <laughs> in the beginning hook global inciting incident scene, and that's the luncheon with uh, Valerie Thomas, Charlie praises Orlean's work as great sprawling New Yorker stuff. And he has a long speech about wanting to remain true to that rather than turning, into, turning it into a Hollywood thing. He says he doesn't want to write about characters learning profound life lessons or growing or coming to like each other or overcoming obstacles and succeeding in the end. 
He says, this book isn't like that and life isn't like that. It just isn't. So he's naive enough to think that a story can be about flowers only. And he spends quite a bit of the beginning hook criticizing Donald for studying story structure. And there's an interesting point in there when Donald has come back from the Robert McKee seminar and he, he talks about genre. There's actually a conversation about genre in here. And Donald says, Robert says, or Bob says, you have to nail your genre. Mine is thriller. What's yours? <laughs> and I was kind of hoping Kaufman would just give us the answer, but of course he doesn't. Well, he doesn't, but he does. Because Charlie Kaufman, the character, his reaction to Donald's question is to kind of roll his eyes and sigh and walk away. Because he sees himself as being more knowledgeable of his brother, knowing more about screenwriting and more about story. And he criticizes Donald for being cliche. All his ideas are odd. And he's trying to write a story that just won't work. So this is how he spends most of the beginning hook. But then he's the plaything to resistance because to me, the villain of the story, it's a story about a writer trying to write a script. The villain is resistance. So for nearly half the film, Charlie is, is just trying to come up with something. And what he's coming up with are these crazy stories about Susan and Laroche, which is the weird stuff that we're seeing actually in the film. Like Anne says, the story sort of turns in on its own belly button, which I think is really funny. Kaufman, the character, gets to a point where he goes to his agent and says, you got to get me out of this. Uh, there is no story here to adapt. It's just sprawling New Yorker shit. And the agent, of course, says that would be career suicide to not turn in something after stringing them along for 15 weeks or however, however long it was. In the middle build, Robert McKee, the character, says to Kaufman, if you write a screenplay without conflict or crisis, you'll bore your audience to tears. Oh, how true that is. Because by then I am so bored to tears with this story that's going nowhere that I'm really craving a storyline. At the end of the middle build, here's what Robert McKee says to Charlie Kaufman. I'll tell you a secret. The last act makes the film. Wow them in the end, and you've got a hit. You can have flaws and problems, but wow them in the end, and you've got a hit. Find an ending, but don't cheat. And don't you dare bring in a deus ex machina. Your characters must change, and the change must come from them. Do that, and you'll be fine. Now, of course, that's exactly what happens in the third act of Adaptation. Kaufman, the writer, not the character, adapts. Um, now, in the film, it seems as though Donald has written the third act, but really Donald and, and Charlie are the same character anyway. All right. So suddenly the story has drama and conflict. Uh, he's chosen to weave the main plot with the subplot in order to create a, an ending payoff that is surprising yet inevitable. And in fact, the third act is the very story that Charlie said in the beginning hook global inciting incident that he didn't want to write. So by finally listening to McKee's advice, Kaufman is demonstrating his sophistication as a screenwriter, where at the beginning of the story, he thought he knew everything. He clearly goes through the stages of naivete master sophistication to naivete to cognitive dissonance, and here in the third act, finally to sophistication. He finally understands that stories reflect life and that life has conflict and that people can change, people adapt, which is the theme of the, the whole thing and the title of the movie, and that stories have shape. So the irony in this ending payoff is that the entire story has a shape, and it follows story structure. 
So while Kaufman has innovated the heck out of this genre, I don't think he's mashed it up with anything. He's done the thing that McKee teaches about. Now, those of you who follow StoryGrid know that we talk about the math, right? The beginning hook is 25%, the middle build is 50, and the ending payoff is 25 in rough numbers. And the middle build is owned by the villain. Well, here, the beginning hook is owned by the villain, which is resistance. And the beginning hook is about 50% of the film. The middle build is actually the shortest part of the story. So the math in adaptation breaks down, by my estimation, into roughly 50, 10, 40. And if I never have to watch this movie again, that will be fine. (laughs) (laughs) You feel like, Valerie, did you feel feel like the whole middle build was just the scenes with McKee, basically? Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wasn't able to see it that way, but it's an interesting argument. So I totally see what Valerie is saying about, you know, we do have a really interesting and and as she says, ironic thing here about story structure, which is a lot of fun um, as story grid nerds. But I think that that is not what the story is about. I think what the story is about is finding meaning. And that's why I see it as worldview education. In fact, as I was watching the film, I was like, oh, this is feeling like maturation because he does have a very black and white view about, you know, there's no structure. You can't fence me in. You know, all those things that we, we like we love to joke about. And then he does embrace it at the end uh, or, you know, as he goes. But when the movie ended, the final lines, you know, the final way that it is, it instantly struck me as, oh. He found meaning and this feels like education. So I'm going to kind of walk you through the things that really stick out to me that in all of this interesting stuff that we have going on here, why I think that world education really is the through line. So in the beginning, he's on the set of being John Malkovich and that, you know, they're filming it and, but nobody knows who he is. He feels rejected and that nothing he does matters. I mean, he wants to write something meaningful, not like just a Hollywood, you know, whatever they do to make, you know, a blockbuster. He wants to write something that's real. That's like life. Um, so he gets this gig, you know, to adapt the orchid thief. And what's interesting, and, you know, Jari talked about it a lot, that we have these two parallel storylines happening. We have Susan's story and we have Charlie's story, and they both seem to be searching for meaning. And meanwhile, um, Charlie's brother, his twin brother, Donald, aka his shadow self, has a life that is filled with meaning. And Charlie struggles a lot with failure and shame. We have a lot of a steam tank stuff happening here, which is why... And Anjari landed on status. You know, there is a lot of steam tank stuff going on here. And one thing that we have found, though, is in order to solve your needs tank problem, you got to go higher. You got to go up to the next level in order to find your solution. And I think that's why we go to worldview um, in order to solve this problem. So at the midpoint, he's having one of his imagination sessions, as I like to call it. Um, and he's looking at the at Susan's picture on the jacket of the book. And she he hears him. him. Yeah. I just want to interject here and say when we talk about imagination here, we are talking about masturbation. This movie has a lot of masturbation. <laughs> a lot of masturbation. People should be aware of that. Yes. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Wait, that's what it is? <laughs> yes. If you are easily offended, if you are reasonably offended by a middle-aged man doing things um. underneath the sheets, <laughs> don't, watch this, don't watch this. So he's looking for meaning, guys. Leave him alone. Okay. So uh, he's... 
So in his imagination, he hears Susan tell him, find the one thing that you care passionately about and write about that. And then at that point, he realizes that the way into the story is to focus on Susan's desire to know what it feels like to care about something passionately. And, you know, we do see several scenes from her storyline about being unhappy with her husband and, you know, really wanting to understand what makes John LaRoche tick and why he is able to attach meaning to things. So the ghost orchid represents this search for meaning, looking for it, but, you know, in her case, certainly not being able to find it because in the actual story and then, you know, she doesn't ever find it or in Charlie's version, she finds it, but it doesn't mean anything. It's just a flower, she says. And then, you know, we get into this whole crazy, you know, third act thing that we got going on with the wrestling alligators and all kinds of stuff. And there's a a moment with Donald and Charlie, um, they're hiding behind a rock in the Everglades and you know, they're talking about this story, but when they were kids and Donald tells Charlie, you are what you love, not what loves you. I'll come back to that in just a second. And then also we have Orchid Guy, John and the brother Donald, they seem to have this meaning in their lives, but they both die in the end, which is really interesting. And then Charlie comes away with this sense of meaning of, of purpose of life. And Susan fails to do the same. And she seems to fall into total meaninglessness and just wants to go back and do it over. And so I think that the parallelism that we see between, between Charlie and Susan's story really does show us why Charlie's story is education about finding meaning because Susan's story is disillusionment about she was never able to find meaning and she loses it. So she really seems like almost like a, um, cause I don't know if she really had meaning to begin with or not. So I'm not sure if there's a difference between a disillusionment story and an education story that ends negatively. Um, I'll have to think about that some more, but she certainly feels like a cautionary tale where if you're not able to find meaning in life, um, this is what can happen to you. And then in the end, Charlie, you know, he kisses Amelia, his 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 love that he finally he kisses her. And he admits that he loves her and she admits that he, she loves him, but we don't really know that they end up together because she has a boyfriend and she goes off, but they have this understanding. And that's how he ends the script, you know, he drives off filled for the first time with hope. And so I think if we compare Charlie in the opening scene to the final scene, we see that he's pretty much the same guy. Uh, he's still a screenwriter. He's still single. He's still kind of neurotic. Um, you know, he's, he's not living with his brother anymore. I'm not sure if his brother has just moved, moved on or if his brother actually died because of the whole meta thing that's happening. But either way, he's not with his brother. But he has hope. He has a new story that he's telling himself about what life means and what events mean. And I wanted to point out that one convention that we see in an education story is that the character's mindset and worldview changes, but they don't necessarily change their actions. They don't have to because they have meaning now. Um, and I, I always give this example of, you know, the person who's doing some sort of manual labor job, like maybe, you know, something that other people look down on, you know, the garbage man, let's say, um, they drive down the street and, you know, they drive the truck and they empty people's garbage cans and it's just, you know, dealing with people's waste and all of this stuff. And that can maybe feel like a meaningless kind of job if you look at it that way. But if you find meaning that, you know, you're helping people, you know, what would we do if we didn't have the garbage man, um, you know, that they really help us process, uh, I can come up with all sorts of meta metaphors for it. Um, but also my kids and I, when we see the garbage man come down, we go outside and we want to wave to the garbage man and he does the, you know, you know, honks the horn and, you know, there's so much joy in watching a big truck go down the street and hearing it rattle and do all of its stuff. And, you know, in a way, if if the garbage man finds meaning, he doesn't stop being a garbage man. He keeps being a garbage man. But being a garbage man means something different today than it did yesterday. Um, and in a maturation story, on the other hand, their mindset changes um, from, you know, them thinking that they, they know the way the world works and that, you know, it must be this way. And they have these specific goals and actions based on that worldview. So when it changes, they must change their goals and actions because their old ones don't fit anymore because they're there's their world be changed so dramatically. 
But in this case, I don't see that happening. Um, I don't think Charlie changes his life at the end. I mean, he certainly he ends up finding a way to make the story work, but he's going to go forward still being a screenwriter, still finding, in fact, I would say being a better screenwriter because he's found meaning and he's found a way to tell his art the way he hears it and to not worry about rejection um, because telling the story matters um, and he has he has meaning and hope and all of these things. And, and so I just, I don't see him taking that maturation step that we would see. Um, I see him more going along with his life the way that it's always been, but it's completely different now because, um, because he is different. So again, I think that that is really the story that's being told here and what the story is really about and um, that it is that global internal education story that is supported by all of these other amazing aspects that do really make it work, um, but that ultimately it is about it is about finding meaning in in the art that you produce. Excellent. Okay, I'm finding myself convinced by you all, all of you. Um, and we're seeing different genres, of course. And when we talk about a story that works, we mean that it meets reader expectations for the genre. And so, one question that's come up for me is, if we have a mashup, then how does the how does the reader know what to expect and how do they telegraph that? And I'm not necessarily posing that to anyone, but it's just something that came up that is something that you would want to address if you were attempting to, to do a mashup. Uh, anyway, okay, so now on to the rebuttal. Anna and Jari, what have you got? Well, I think it's interesting that we all disagree very heartily on what the genres or genre, you know, there's we've listed what five different genres here or something. It, it supports the idea that at least you know my argument that the genre isn't entirely clear. It's technically a broken rule. Now you can find a case for it being this genre or that genre. I can make my case for it being status primarily, but the fact that we can all make that case, I think, supports my argument that it's kind of a mashup, a successful mashup. And it works because there is a through line, and whether that through line is Charlie's maturation, his disillusionment, his his compromise, I'm I'm not sure. To me, it's his his status, his search for status, and his ultimate compromise. But we all saw something a little different. One of the things that I just wanted to point out that's missing from Kim's kind of cause and effect statement about the the worldview genre that she sees is that. The shocking turn of events, the deaths at the end of LaRoche and Donald, are entirely comic. They're absurd, they're false, and it and to me that whole third act represents Charlie's big performance, his big show, and that he is compromising his artistic beliefs in order to meet this contractual obligation. So he's succeeded in the sense that in the real world he has found his story, and I put everything in quotes here, is it real, is it meta, is it past, future, we don't know. But on the meta level, we know that he has finished it and seen it produced because we are sitting there watching the result. We've watched the movie, that the movie is about him writing. So he has compromised his values by adapting, by writing the ridiculous third act fantasy that Hollywood requires that Robert McKee kind of basically told him, write a good ending and they'll forgive you. So we all seem to agree that it works, but for different reasons, which I think is really, really important. So what's the takeaway for writers? First of all, this is high wire stuff. This is not for beginners. Jari has already said this. I want to emphasize it. It's not that you shouldn't try it. It's not that you shouldn't think about it. It's just that you should be aware if you do that this is a very advanced story technique. Complex narrative devices like nonlinear time, nested framing stories, 
Um, at one point, I think I counted four layers deep because we were in the past of the past of the past. Um, if this is the kind of story that you want to explore in your own writing, and I, I get that, I like to explore it in mine. Choose your genre pairings carefully. Some genres go together better than others. If you have characters with entirely separate storylines in different genres, again, not for the faint of heart. I've seen this done and like David Mitchell does it in Cloud Atlas. Chances are the only way you will be able to pull them together is with a trick. In the case of Cloud Atlas, it's sort of vaguely a reincarnation story and we sort of discover that. But all the stories are in completely different genres, but they're serially presented, not concurrent. This one's concurrent. It's amazing. But if you choose compatible genres like performance and status or love and morality, it will be easier to tie your storylines together. Loosely related stories with a recurring motif and theme, if that's what you're after, that's going to fall into the literary style genre. If you want to do that, do that. It's great. I consider adaptation a definitely a literary style genre story. Typically, literary does not have the same size of audience as the external content genres in a straight drama or comedy. So be aware of the limitations, but yeah, give it a try. Yeah, I mean, you can, but but just just make sure you make cronuts and not mayo tuna Doritos. Because <laughs> no one wants to eat a mayo tuna Dorito. <laughs> I mean, I and and I would never uh, I would never recommend any um, of my clients or any of the, the people that I know initially to write something like this. I think part of craft is to practice like you practice basic moves in sports in artistic, you know, endeavors, um, you know, you're going to practice the violin, you're going to do the chords and the scales. And then when you master that, you're going to go make it more advanced. Like, like Anne said, this is a master work in complexity in terms of weaving together narratives, uh, which works because, you know, Charlie Kaufman's a fantastic writer and he's, he's made the time and effort and done the hard work to do it. I mean, just, yeah, cronuts, not, tuna mayo Doritos. That's all I, that's where I'm going to leave it. The other thing that we haven't really said, I don't think, is that this whole film is like an in-joke. It is. Right? Yeah. You totally. know, the, the audience for this is writers. I wonder if someone who is not involved in this industry at all, whether it's novels or screenplays or, or what have you, I wonder if they would even get what's happening or if they would just kind of look at it and think, well, this is really kind of strange. So yeah, it's a very meta movie and it's a total in-joke. That's a really good point. It is an inside joke. And that's another uh, one way of saying, if you decide to write something along this line, you are narrowing your audience. Absolutely. Be aware of that. And it's perfectly fair to do it. That's right. That's right. Just be aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So one of the things I want to mention because we're talking about a literary story that is also comedy, is that a lot of literary stories are, are kind of heavy and serious. I've read a lot of them recently for a writing retreat I'm going to, and we don't want to lose sight of the fact that there are some great examples of literary fiction, literary style with mini plot, where we also have a strong dose of comedy. And I'm specifically thinking of books by Tom Robbins, by Christopher Moore and Owen Edgerton. They're all great examples if you want to try to combine a more literary style with comedy. Okay, so 
Now the question is, has the A-team made their case? Or would you give the points to their adversaries? Thumbs up or thumbs down? We would love to hear your thoughts on this story. Feel free to comment or argue with us on our interpretations at StoryGridRT on Twitter. Next up, listener questions. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. So if you have a question about genre mashups, literary style, absurdism, or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT or leave us a voice message on the website at storygrid.com resources. Then click on the Editor Roundtable podcast. Today's question is from Sue in Portland. Let's have a listen. Hi, StoryGrid editors. Thanks so much for the podcast. I always learn a lot. Um, my question today is about internal genres and external genres and how they work together and how they don't work together. So if you could go into uh, a little bit about what makes a great pairing with internal and external genre, um, what makes a less than ideal pairing, and then which are, again, those external genres that don't really need an internal genre. That would be so helpful. Thanks. Hi, Sue. Thank you so much for your question. Now, I could write a whole Fundamental Fridays blog post about this because it's a huge topic, but okay, I'm going to do my best to hit the highlights, okay? What we're talking about here is the content leaf of the StoryGrid 5 leaf genre clover. Sue is quite right when she says that some of the external content genres work perfectly well without internal content genres, and they are Action, for example, Mission Impossible. Crime, and those would be like the James Bond or the Jack Reacher books. Horror, Dracula, for instance, and the Friday the 13th films. And courtship love stories that end positively. And these are also known as romances. Those would be like the Nora Roberts style books or romantic comedies if we're talking about a film. Or, well, even in novels for that matter. Now, the Western might be included in this list too, but I'll be honest, I'm not an expert in this genre. In terms of pairings that work well, okay, I would argue that the content genres can be paired in any way an author wants, but we do see some of them paired together more often than others. For example, performance stories are often paired with a status sentimental story, and that's Rocky. Action stories, especially when they're from the fantasy uh, reality leaf, are often paired with worldview maturation stories. And if you don't believe me, go to the um, 9 to 12 section in your bookstore, and that's every book on the shelf. It's the Harry Potter style book. Love stories are often paired with worldview maturation stories. And of course, the quintessential example of that is Pride and Prejudice. We, We talk about that a lot on this show. Crime stories are often paired with some kind of morality story, whether it's a redemption or testing or punitive. Now, talking about redemption stories, we see those paired with a bunch of external content genres. And examples of those would be paired with an action story in Gran Torino. Um, a crime story would be Drugstore Cowboy. With um, a legal thriller would be The Verdict. With a horror story, A Christmas Carol. So that gets paired with a lot. So it's kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, negative blood. It's the universal donor. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> um, but now in saying that, 
Please don't think that because we often see certain pairings together, that it has to be done this way. In fact, I argue that putting genres, content genres together in a way that we don't normally see is a great way to innovate a story. Let me give you an example. Crime stories, as I said, are often paired with redemption stories, right? And this is where you've got a bad guy who does the right thing in the end. But what if you wrote a crime story in which a good guy goes bad? That's what Vince Gilligan did with Breaking Bad, and he's now doing it with Better Call Saul. So now Breaking Bad's been around forever, like 10 years or so. So right now, today, it doesn't sound very innovative to us. But at the time, it was so innovative that Gilligan had a hard time selling the idea of the show. Because while studio executives loved the concept, they said that they wouldn't be able to sell advertising around it. It was too new. It was too different. It represented a risk in storytelling. AMC decided to take the risk. And of course, you know, the rest is history. So here's my best recommendation when it comes to pairing internal and external content genres. Watch your favorite movies and read your favorite books and figure out what the pairing is. Is there a trend in what you are reading or or watching? In your own writing, are you following that trend? Are you just regurgitating something we've seen a thousand times? Or is there a way, is there an opportunity here for you to innovate? Okay, I hope that helps. Uh, Let me know what you think at StoryGridRT. Thank you, Valerie. Great answer. And I hope you do write that blog post. Thanks to Sue, too, for an excellent question. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thanks to Anne, Jari, Kim, and Valerie for excellent editorial insights into adaptation. We hope our discussion helps you think carefully before attempting a genre mashup. You can find our extensive show notes at storygrid.com. And if you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, the links to our websites can be found in the show notes. Join us next time to find out whether I can make the case that the 1976 film Rocky is a great example of a global status sentimental story told through the lens of the Virgin's promise. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey, nice job, everybody. I think that was a really good discussion. Yeah, I do too. Jari, thank you. You saved my ass. (laughs) Oh, not a problem. Good job.